He gave me the offer of giving me potentially 50% of his business. And I thought, do you know what? Let's go and do it. That's when the journey of Yellow Panther really took off. Hello, everyone. Today I'm joined by Stu, who is the co founder of Yellow Panther, which is a digital agency that has served brands like eBay, Doritos, VW, Emirates. Are there any others that I might miss there? I... <laughs> yeah, a few, but um, yeah, we've, we've worked with some small brands all the way up to some big conglomerates. So, you know, we've worked with Nike, uh, the Rajasthan Royals, and Cricket, um, all the way through to lots of small startups, but they're just a few of our clients. Yeah. So, what does a creative agency do for someone who doesn't know? Yeah, so we're, we're well, we like to call ourselves a technology company first and foremost. And okay. um, so, our new strapline, which we're about to announce in the next few weeks, is Wild Creativity, Boundless Technology. And what we try and do at Yellow Panther essentially is win, win a brief, build a digital product. But how we want that digital product to be built and look, we're really big on. So, very big on aesthetics, brand, and making things pop. We're um, not a kind of digital studio that churns out uh, populated um, websites, which are just reskinned. Everything that we build is completely unique and customized to the brand. Okay, that's cool. And so you could potentially build like an app for someone like it doesn't just stop at a marketing website, it goes all the way. Yeah, so we, we have lots of services within the business. Uh, we have a mobile app team, as you said, um, website team, e-commerce team. And then also we build mobile games as well. And then we have a small team that does augmented and virtual reality as well. But 80% of our revenue is essentially building apps and building website and e-commerce platforms at the moment. That is really cool. You must get to see like all of these like brands behind the scenes and their like strategies and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting space. As I said at the start, we work with many brands of varying sizes. So we may work with one brand that has a team of 20. We may work with a startup that's just one man or woman. So we kind of have yeah. to strategize and project manage around their resources and their expectations. We have to adapt to that. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting business to be in and uh, pretty difficult. But uh, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job at the moment. So what's the story? How did you get into this position? You're co-founder, right? So there's two of you. How did the business come about? Yeah, so my background's predominantly in sports and I've worked with loads of different rights holders, but one that I worked for was the Rajasthan Royals in the Indian Premier League. So I ended up working for the owner of the Rajasthan Royals and his digital venture company called Blair & Chalcott. And what that meant was I used to consult across a suite of their businesses, but the Rajasthan Royals was the main business I worked across. So I used to fly between Mumbai and London where I lived. And long story short, when I joined the Royals, I had to build a digital strategy uh, for the Royals. And that meant essentially starting from scratch. So building out the team and then looking at all the digital products that they have from social media, their website, their shop, their app, uh, their business school, just looking at ways to kind of do fan engagement, drive revenue and drive fandom. Um, And yeah, long story short, we went out with loads of tenders to put that digital strategy together. So spoke to loads of different agencies. And actually, Yellow Panther was around two years before I joined the business. So uh, Yellow Panther was formed by the other co-founder. His name is Gunjan Parikh, uh, Indian descent, but he lives in Manchester. Uh, Yellow Panther was a very small boutique uh, development house at the time. So it was just a team of six and 10 agencies applied. And I actually chose Yellow Panther to build 
all of the tech for the Royals. Um, so that's when I first met my partner, Gunjan, um, and they did such a great job. And me and him really bonded. Like we obviously worked together and there was kind of layers of professionalism, but actually we became really close friends. We used to speak sometimes 10 times a day, um, but we never met in person because of COVID and, and whatnot and just the you know, constraints of me being in India whilst he was in the UK. So it's like a virtual relationship. And then uh, if I get to the point, essentially me and my partner had a baby and because of my current job and the jobs I had before, I was pretty much 50% in the UK, 50% abroad. And she gave me a bit of an ultimatum and said, Stuart, you know, we're having a child, so you can't keep living in hotels on uh, the other side of the world. So That's my ambition enough. was, <laughs> yeah, I know, quite entitled <laughs> to say that. Um, so it was my um, ambition to set up my own agency. And I can remember I was driving back from London and I got a call from Dungeon and he was like, oh, you, you've left the Royals, what, what's your plans? And I said, well, I, I want to start my own business and I want to start a, a digital agency. And he said, well, hold fire. I've got a small business here. I want to scale it and grow. We get on really well. Why don't you join the business? And long story short, I met him at uh, Stafford Service Station at McDonald's for a coffee because that was halfway between Levington Spa, where I live at the moment, and Manchester, where Gunjan lived. And we were there for three hours, um, spoke a lot. I went away from it. He gave me the offer of giving me potentially 50% of his business. I pondered on it for about a week. And then I thought, do you know what? Let's go and do it. And then, yeah, that's when the journey with Yellow Panther kind of really took off because Yellow Panther really only had a couple of clients. It had the Rajasthan Royals and a couple of small startups. Um, it wasn't really a big business by any means. We did have the foundations of having a handful of developers there and having some case studies. So came to the business and uh, yeah, it's been a great kind of two, yes, nearly it's two years next week actually that, that I joined and joined that journey. That's cool. And how many clients have you worked with now? Well, uh, Quite a few, right? 49, I think it is now. In the space so, of two years? Yeah. Yeah, that is a lot of clients in a short period of time. <laughs> yeah, um, we've grown fast. Um, the other thing to add is we, we've got, well, we've taken no investment. Um, we've been given no grants. Everything that we've won and earned business-wise, we've thrown any profits back into the business and essentially mm. bootstrapped it. And I think now we've gone from being a startup to a scale-up. So we're what are we, 33 in size in terms of employees? And we've got a couple more joining us in the next month. Um, yeah, and we've got reoccurring customers. We're winning new business um, and things are going well. I think when you start a business, especially the first year to 18 months are brutal. It's really hard to like create a brand, be recognized for providing a great service. But as soon as you start to get new clients, what we've seen is, we get a lot of recommendations from current clients. They speak to their network and then suddenly conversations start. And we don't really have a sales team. It's Gunjan and I that, as the two founders, drive all the sales. It's a real weakness of the business, but it's just meant that we've not had huge overheads of having a sales team working for us. And that, that's something that will change as we keep growing. But uh, yeah, the growth's been exponential, so we must be doing something right. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was having this conversation um, with a friend of mine and we were saying like, would you rather have um, the best product in the world or like unlimited distribution in the world? And we sort of came to the realization that 
product kind of trumps all. So if you build like a very good service, as you say, like the ball will get rolling. It just may take longer. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know. Do you, that, would you agree? I mean, I guess you've seen pretty successful so far as a business without the sales team. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think there's a right answer to that. But in our experience, just building very, very good products that other brands see within that industry, that then has that snowball effect. So, for example, we build a lot of e-commerce shops, and that was never really our kind of out, out goal. So our outcome or our goal as a business to build shops. But... We built a couple very early when I joined the business within the first six months. And then literally you'll get two or three leads from rival businesses within that sector going, we love what you did there for that brand. Can we speak? And then suddenly a year later, you've built 10 shops. And then a year after that, suddenly you've built 14. And you're like, oh, actually we're getting very good at this. And the team that, that we've grown, they've had lots of kind of hurdles and, and troubles at the start and lots of things that they learned. They take those learnings into the new projects. So it doesn't happen again and things just become smoother. Um, there's a lot of kind of bumps in the road when you're a startup, you, you do learn as you go along, but the more issues that you, you know, come across, hopefully down the line, you don't have the same issues appear again and again and again. So yeah, I'd, I'd always say building good solid products rather than distribution for us as a business is, is definitely the way forward. Mm, interesting. Um, I run like a, nothing compared to you guys, like a small web flow creative agency. Um, I probably shouldn't say small, it doesn't sell it very well. <laughs> we make marketing websites, which are more straightforward than apps and things like this. Um, but I've definitely noticed similar to what you're saying, I've ended up finding like a foothold in the psychedelics drug development industry, um, as a very small business at the moment, I'm almost finding that to now expand out of that industry almost takes a bit of work and momentum. Cause as you say, within this one, work just keeps coming and you learn how to do it. So do you find that at all? Do you, do you think that you're going to need to push more to break into other areas you'd like to work in? Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a big question. I think the mistake that a lot of startups make is they try to be everything to everyone and then we never become renowned for anything. So. Uh, that was a mistake that we actually made. We tried to work across too many industries. And actually, when you do that, you dilute the quantity of your work because my, my background is sports. I always thought you had a pamphlet would just be more sports clients, maybe with a few others that fit in industries that are similar. But 40% of our clients are sport. We work in you know, the fitness industry, education, the charitable sectors, um, travel and tourism, e-commerce. So we've kind of branched our tentacles out. If I could go back, though, two years i would have been a bit stricter with who we spoke to within what industries and just become very good at that it's naturally happened two years later but what that did at the time it just meant that we were probably out of our depth in a few projects working in some mm -hmm. industries that we just didn't have the knowledge and we were winging it to be honest and got found out on occasions but we're now a little bit stricter but if, if i was to give you advice just be very good at what you do within that industry. And naturally, if another brand comes to you that has similarities to that industry, slightly pivot into it, but don't try and go into four industries at once because again, you know, the, the knowledge, the experience that you have won't be there initially. And there's nothing wrong just to be great at one or two industries rather than 10. 
Can you talk a bit more about the times where it went slightly wrong? Because when a client trusts you essentially with huge outcomes of their business, like these things, they move the needle a lot, whether you have a good website or a bad website. And they trust you with that. And then you feel as if you've let them down. It's, it can be the worst feeling in the world if they're not happy. So how did you sort of deal with that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> one thing that happened about nine months into the journey was Gunjan and I were winning more and more clients, but we didn't have like a client services team. We call it a projects team at, at Yale Pamper. And what happened was Gunjan and I would split the projects in half. So he would manage, let's say, four or five. I would then go and manage four or five. And then we started to win a few more. And it got to the point where Gunjan and myself, just our time was just spread too thin and we couldn't get back to clients quick enough. Um, we really couldn't give them the care and attention that they deserved. And I think when you run the business, we didn't really have the time to do the discovery sessions and the strategy up front to make sure that we knew all the nuances of what they needed in their platform, who their rivals were, what their tech stack is, who their audience is, essentially what their platform needed to do to get customer A all the way through to, to buying a product, for example. So we had to invest. Um, so, you know, as I said, all of our profits went into hiring the first project manager. And then a year after hiring our first one, we now have a projects team of five. And now we can split our projects evenly um, and give the right project to the right project manager with the right skill set so that, we always get back to the client, you know, within four hours. We we have a checklist at Yellow Panther that we always go through of how we service clients and, you know, being quick to get back to them, to service them properly, to go back with the right answer and to make sure that we feel like an extension of their team is super important. And I'd say for about a four to five month period, we didn't have that. And it was just a circus and organized chaos. And we got found out on a couple of projects um, which doesn't do you any good because the client loses faith with you. You potentially then lose a, re a retainer because um, we always try to build a great product and then have a retainer model to look after the products and the client to further develop it, enhance it, make sure that the app or the website's super quick just to make sure it's, it's improving all the time. And we just weren't able to do that. But I felt like the only issues why we couldn't do that is because we can afford to have a big projects team because we didn't have... Um, you know, a, a VC or an angel investor coming to give us a big pot of money to grow that team. We had to kind of stagger it and slowly build that team. But, you know, to have a project management team go from one to five within 12 months has been, you know, unbelievable for the business and more importantly, super useful to the client because they now feel that they can trust us because they're bloody good at what they do. And that project's team has been, uh, what's the word? kind of pivotal. invaluable yeah pivotal okay. like w w without yeah. them we'd be screwed as a business and we would have lost clients the way that it was going so yeah i think it just goes to show like even when you do get faced with essentially failures you just have to keep plugging on and just trying to fix them and that's like such easy advice to give out and to hear but sometimes in reality you could be doing something wrong for like months and months and months but you just have to keep keep going and like the solution will come so how did you find the right people? Because you hired five people in a year. That's quite quick, I, I'm guessing, like compared to average. And like, yeah, how do you build so, a culture um, in the team? Two good questions. So hiring, we don't have an HR person. So I do all the hires in the UK. 
Um, because I should have said at the start, we have two offices. We have one in India and then we have one in the UK. Our designers, developers, our quality control team, they're all based in India, but our project management team, they're based with me just, just through that uh, in the other office. So when I hire, I don't rush it. Um, I use LinkedIn, I use job portals, I use um, various networks that I've got. I speak to other people at other agencies and essentially I'll look for, shouldn't say young talent, but because of where we are as a business, the one thing we couldn't do a year or 18 months ago, we couldn't hire project managers who had 10 years of experience because the summer expectations were just too high for us and would have put us under massive um, pressure as a business. So we tended to hire people that were just a couple of years outside of university that have worked for another agency or a technology company. And I always feel if you've been in a job for a couple of years, you haven't been promoted, you probably will look to move on. So we went out with a job across our website on LinkedIn, across job portals. But I also looked at people in the local area and did some digging and used LinkedIn and privately went to people that I thought would be the right fit. So I looked at what they posted on LinkedIn, what projects they managed, what were the agencies they worked with, did they share some narratives to us? And um, Sophie, who we hired into the first role, we were in our previous office. She literally lived two streets away. And on the day that the application was about to close, she just dropped in her CV and cover letter. And I'd already gone through in 200 CVs. No, 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 she had some out of favor. But she did pop in two days later for a coffee, which helped. Oh. Um, but I'd already gone through 200 CVs. I did uh, initial interviews with 30 different people. And actually, Sophie was the best um, by distance. And what we do at Yellow Panther in terms of our hiring, we have a three-step process. So we do an initial kickoff interview, which is just with myself. Then we do a second interview where Gunjan joins and it gets more technical. And then the third stage interview, we ask them to come to the office and we set them a challenge based on a current project that we've got. And it's not about overcoming the challenge or succeeding or failing. We just like to know what their strategic approach is to that challenge and how they go about it. And we also do that in India as well with our developers. We'll give them a challenge based on a, it could be a mobile app that we built for a, you know, a cricket team. And what we found is in the last two years, we've only lost one employee and that employee just went on to get a new job, which was great. And they couldn't say no to it, but we've hired good staff. We haven't had to let anyone go because they weren't capable. Um, but yeah, we, we tend to focus on kind of younger staff just because of the salary expectations, develop them. And to, to your second question about how do we grow like a, a great environment? I say to anyone that works for us, if you just give us two years of good service and you want to go on to work for a bigger agency to earn more money and to also even set up your own business, as long as you work hard for those two years, we will always allow you to move on. We will give you a great recommendation um, and we want you to, to go on in your career and succeed. But that's only happened with one person so far. And the other thing that we've done as a business, again, with our profits, Everyone that's worked in our business in the last 18 months has had at least one pay rise. Some people have had three. So initially their salaries were quite low. We have to be honest with that, but we topped them up really quickly. As soon as we can afford it, Gunjan and I are not taking any profits. We're not taking dividends. We're not paying ourselves massive salaries. We know it's more important to pay our staff fairly and to reward them when they do consistent good work where clients are happy. And at the moment that seems to be working. And then the, the last thing is, we offer our staff 
complete flexibility in terms of hybrid working. We like them to come into the office, but if they want to, you know, go to Amsterdam for a week and work in the day and do tourist stuff needed, they can do that. If they need to rush home from the office because, you know, there's a delivery, that's cool. And we're really flexible with hours. We don't say you have to be at nine and leave at five or six. You can come in at 10, you can leave at four, as long as you do your job and, you know, you're there for your clients and the projects don't fall by the wayside. That's cool with us. And that seems to be working. Sounds like a great place to work, Yellow Panther. <laughs> you're looking for a job. Yeah, I might be after this. <laughs> it's, um, know, it's not always perfect. They are under stress at yeah, times, and we know that. A, a good example is so Sophie has got an American client, our biggest one, and she's had to work a couple of real late nights, and she had to work a Sunday a few weeks ago. So she came to us because her and her partner were going to crack off for two days. And she said, Stu, look, I've, I've kind of done three late nights and worked half day on a Sunday. Do I have to take those two days as holiday? And we were like, no, to be fair, you, you deserve those two days. Just go keep your holiday, use it for another time and, and have a good time with your partner. So I just think we're, we're reasonable, but, but really fair because I've worked yeah, in businesses that, that don't seems, do that and you, you hate it eventually. Yeah, that seems really great. And I would agree. It's, it definitely sounds fair. Like that's how it should be. But most like 99% of people don't do that, like companies. So that's really cool. Yeah, hopefully it works in the long run. But I think the proofs are put in, mate. Like if you, if we've had one member of staff leave in two years, so we've got to be doing something right. Yeah, that's really cool. So business question, you're not paying yourself huge salaries, you're not taking dividends, but I suppose whatever the intentions of a business are is always to eventually, you know, make money. So how do you, how does the business model in creative agencies work in terms of that? Like, would you consider an exit one day? Would you consider selling equity? Do you get paid high dividends? How does that work in 10, 15 years? Yeah. So in terms of the dividends, look, eventually Gunjan and I do want to, at the end of the financial year, be able to pay ourselves a tax-free dividend and take that as like a bonus. But we just believe at the moment it's more important to reinvest any profit we make back into the business and hire good people. Because that's the other thing. We don't really use freelancers. We have on the odd occasion, but it's very, very rare. Everything that we do, we do it in-house because it's a question about uh, merger or acquisition. We do have uh, a rough kind of timeline of when we would like to go through that process. We think within the next four to five years, we think, you know, we're a business that's growing. We could have a lot of value to a bigger technology or software company where we could plug in to them or plug into an agency that maybe doesn't have development and design capabilities and they want to just acquire a company quickly to offer that to their clients. We kind of want to be that business that's easy to understand. If they had a DG diligence over us, everything's kind of shored up from our contracts to our finances to, um, you know, our employee contracts with staff. So we, we have got a goal to exit and we know that if we do exit or we part sell shares, that's where Gunja and I will make that money eventually. But um, if I go back to when I first joined Yellow Panther, I didn't pay myself one pound for the first nine months. So my savings just dwindled. And like, I've got kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got a partner who works, she's a writer, so she works in the creative industry and, you know, she'll earn her contracts every six months. So she's, there's, there's no kind of monthly salary coming in for her. So all the pressure's on me. But I paid myself enough that I can support my family, but I haven't, you know, I haven't saved any money 
for two, two and a half years. And I've lost, I spent 25 grand in that nine month period just to pay the bills. So yeah, it's, it's brutal. But I think what that did between Gunjan and, and, and my relationship is that it showed him that I was all in and what that did for Gunjan, I think was great because I didn't just come in and go, right, Gunjan, you need to pay me a salary for a month long because we can't afford it. So um, it built that trust and showed that we're equally both committed to the business. That's awesome. That's awesome. How do you think about risk then? Because that sounds like a lot of risk to take on, especially when you've got like a family and a mortgage. Are you a risk taker? Uh, yeah, I, I would have said no, but actually because of all the decisions I've made, Actually, in hindsight, yes. Um, you know, the, the, the business is still growing. It's still young. The good thing is, is that we know what our outgoings are, our burn rate, and the money we're making each month is more than that. So, you know, we're in a reasonably good position. We would like to win some bigger contracts. It, it was really interesting two years ago. We were winning contracts that were 10 to 20 grand. Then after kind of six to nine months, they went to like 20 to 40. Then they kind of went from 50 to 100. And then recently we've got a couple of contracts which are over 100 grand. Our aim is now to try and win projects which are 100 to 250 grand because the margins we drive at those are a lot bigger. Um, and if you add up, let's say you added up 10, 10 grand contracts, the stress, the output, the work rate is a lot less than one 100 grand project. It's easier to plan for it, to set resources to it and to deliver it on time. Um, but you only win bigger contracts when you can prove you've delivered previously big contracts. Because let's say you work with a big sports rights holder. If they've got an RFP to build an app and a website and a shop, they're not going to come to Yellow Panther if we haven't got credentials of working with other rights holders and delivered significant projects. Now we have those case studies and we have those clients that can give us testimonies. That means now we're now in, in the mix to win bigger projects. And that's been... The previous in the pudding because we've received RFPs from bigger sports clients for big ticket projects. We've lost, we haven't won some of them, but we've won a few recently. And that shows the shift of our business from working with smaller projects to bigger ones. So if that continues, we'll be able to grow more and, and you know, drive bigger margins, reinvest even more, and then hopefully it will help us for when we do the, the merger acquisition in four or five years time. What's been your favorite um, like bid or like RFP response? Is there one that stands out as it was an amazing client, amazing project, and then it was successful, or have they all been a bit rocky? Um, one that we were successful with is Universal Tennis in the United States. So there, they've got many shareholders, but the main shareholder is Larry Ellison, uh, the billionaire that owns Oracle. Uh, he's a big tennis fan. He set up Universal Tennis to democratize rankings for grassroots players all the way up to uh, professional players. So literally next week, we deliver their website. It's been a seven-month project. It's our second biggest ever contract. Um, they've been just an awesome client to work with. Um, they're kind of well-organized, polite. If you ever need anything from them, you know, branding documents, links, content, copy, they get back to you straight away. Um, and they pushed us as much as we pushed them. And I feel like the products we built for them is amazing. And it was complicated and we learned loads through the project. And they always said to us that it wouldn't be easy and it hasn't been. But I'm really proud of kind of, of how the team overcomes some of the issues we have with them. And the, yeah, the quality of the website, which goes live next week, is, is 
yeah, unbelievable. And I think it's one of the best, if not the best, in tennis. So hopefully that will then win us more projects. Um, there was one RFP we we worked with with um, Six Nations. We knew that 20 of our agencies applied for the RFP. It would have been our biggest by a mile, and it was to build all of their digital products over a two-year period. Um, we got down to the last three or maybe four agencies to the last round, and we weren't successful. And it was it was gut, like gutting because the team and I spent two months on our proposal, created like 50 UI UX designs, did loads of strategy work. I reckon we probably probably cost us about 10 grand in terms of resource, maybe a little bit more, and we didn't get it. But it's that risk reward where if we did get it, it would have been unbelievable for the business because that project would have been half of our revenue from that year, just in one project. Um, but I need to look at it with a positive. It was the most detailed RFP we ever put together. Um, the team learned a lot. And then the next time we speak to a business similar to Six Nations, I think we'll be in a better place to hopefully get it over the line. And we've got a couple of RFPs that we're answering next month, one in horse racing, and then one with an Olympic um, international governing body. If we can get those two over the line, it's going to be an unbelievable year for us. So fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be an amazing year. That sounds really cool. Do you ever consider walking away from RFPs? Because like, if you really look at it, you're like, this is going to cost us 10K. The other agencies are huge. And then it might not be worth our time. Yeah. I, there's no right or wrong answer. It, it obviously depends on um, who you are as a business and your desperational need to answer RFPs. But I think there's kind of two answers here. Answer one for us, we don't look for RFPs. So we don't just go out and you know go on LinkedIn or go onto like RFP portals. We don't do that anymore. We did a year, 18 months ago. But we'll always look at RFP. If someone wants to send send it to us, we'll sit down as a team. We'll go through it. So we did that as a team. There were six of us the other day for this international Olympics, Olympic bodies, uh, a rights holder. And we went through the RFP to see if it was right for us. And as a team, we decided, yes, it was, and we could deliver this. And then we spent two weeks putting together our proposal. Um, so there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I always believe... Go go for an RFP if you believe you can A, deliver it at the right price, but you do have a bit of an affinity or a connection to the brand. If they come to you out of the cold and you're not really aware of them, and that RFP is going to take you away from servicing your current clients, I would walk away. Interesting advice. Yeah. And I was just thinking, for those that don't know, RFP is request for proposal, right? It's basically saying, like, yeah. what can you do for us? Yeah. I actually, yeah, and it, it, it's shit, by the way, the RFP process, I have to say, it's brutal. And you, you've got to think whenever you go for it, there's going to be minimum five agencies up to 20 or 30 that are going for it. So you only have to look at the odds there of you winning it. They're very yeah. small and slim. So you've really got to weigh it up. If it's a really small RFP in terms of ticket size, I probably wouldn't work towards it. But if it's big and it's a game changer for your business, Go in, give it your best shot. Yeah. You'll learn a lot from it. And even if it's a no, as long as you, you're taking the key learnings from that process, it's been good for you because yeah. the, the knockbacks you get in business is when you truly learn. It's not the successes, it's the no's that you get and the failures that you have. Yeah, it's very true. And I guess um, 
all it takes, as we were talking about, is like persistence and keeping at it. But if you do land one on the off chance, it doesn't matter if you land them this time or in two years' time, that can be like the pivotal changing point for the whole business forever, as you say, because you get into the big leagues and then you're there. Absolutely. And also, um, you've got to look at do I need to win new business or do I need to work better with my existing clients? And let's say you do win that RFP and it's a 50 grand project. Don't look at it as a 50 grand project. Look at it as if I deliver 50 grand in year one, but actually, can I turn that 50 grand into 100 grand in year two, 150 grand in year three? And maybe will they look to work with me over a longer period of time? Because that's it's so much easier to uh, drive more revenue from current clients than it is to win new ones. So that's why the ticket size and the type of RFP, if you can deliver on it, is really important, but always look long-term, not just one-off for that project. How much, you're clearly like very switched on and knowledgeable about it. How much do you, how much of your time do you commit these days? Obviously you've got a kid. I'm, I'm, me and my friends are always keen to understand like, how much entrepreneurs actually sacrifice to commit to their work? Because I've felt it, if I go out on a Saturday night, when I come back to start things on Monday or on Sunday morning, I could completely yeah. forgotten what I was working on. So we're having this debate, like how much do you have to let it go? So I'll throw that to you. <laughs> um, you have to sacrifice like mind, body and soul uh, to do it. It's, I'd say like, it, there's so many bullshitters on LinkedIn saying, you know, just do a side hustle, see where it goes, or just quit your job and risk it all. You know, if you don't back yourself, you'll never win. So absolutely bollocks. It really is. Like the only reason, and this is where I go back to your point, am I, you know, a risk taker or not? I don't think I would have joined Grimson and Yellow Panther if I didn't have had 40 grand's worth of savings in my account. Without that money, I wouldn't have done it. I would have gone into another um, type of employment within sport in London, in Birmingham, somewhere within an hour and a half of my home. So only set up a business if you've got a comfort blanket, you can move back in with your parents, you have some savings to fall back on, give yourself a 12-month runway and give yourself 12 months of breathing room to see if you can get your business right to risk it without any savings when you've got, you know, either a mortgage or you know, your monthly rental fees going out, you're going to put yourself under pressure that will eat into your work and you won't be able to deliver to the standard that you uphold yourself to because the stress and anxiety will eat you down. You will go to sleep every night stressed and worrying about where my next contract is coming in. And it's still, it's still, you know, it happens to me now, like we're responsible for 31 other employees they all have children or partners or mortgages to pay you know i go to bed always thinking about business and sometimes i'm with my son who's three and i shouldn't say this but it's true like i i'm in the park with him and i'm there in body but not in mind because i'm just thinking about work and worrying um so you have to have thick skin you have like i i've aged 10 years into you, you just have to accept this bloody hard. It's very rare that you set the business and it, it succeeds and it has to be right for your circumstances. So don't believe the bullshit is on LinkedIn. Do what's right for you. Um, but if you do believe that you can make it a success and you've got the environment around you to do that, by all means, go ahead because it's the best thing I've ever done. I've learned more in two years than I've ever learned to never any other job. Um, 
because the one thing you have to do as a business is you have to work on things you are not good at or experienced in. Like, you know, I've never worked in finance, never worked in HR, never worked in legal, but you have to do those things as a founder and you have to learn on the job. And that's tough, especially if you're shit at it. What's been the best thing you've realized or learned, or I often talk about this like curtain lifting moment where you're just like, oh shit, people have been doing it like this for years and I've only just found out. Are there any things like that that you've seen or practices that you've now, you're now doing that you're like, I would never not go back to not doing this? That's a good question. There's, there's many things, but actually I think maybe the biggest thing I've learned is that the way I thought something should be done, I always thought that was the right way. And I was quite arrogant in my thinking, but actually I've been quite humbled um, in terms of like my team coming in and actually doing things or setting up processes that were better than what I put in place. So again, I go back to the projects team. Like I, I've always worked with project management tools. I've worked with like Jira, Asana, Monday.com. I set up Asana for the business. I set up our SharePoint. I set up Microsoft Teams. And I thought it was right for our business and future proof just for at least three years. And within six to nine months of me doing that, the projects team have ripped it up and done it their own way, which is better for them, better for our whole business and better for the clients. So understanding that if you bring in people, give them the um, respect and room to breathe and actually hire them to do a job. So let them get on with it. Yes, they're going to make mistakes, but actually if you do give them the trust and autonomy, they will surprise you. Um, and that for me is like, it's really kind of put me in my box at times where they're like, Stuart, what you've done here isn't good enough. And I'm like, oh, okay. So let's do it your way then. It's good that you can accept that and admit that. Because again, I don't think many people can. What, well, I, what... I, I, I struggled to accept it at first, but then actually when they're like, can we just give it a chance, Stuart, and just see it in practice? And you're like, oh, it's working and it's better than, than what I set up. Then you're like, well, there's your proof. So there's your sample size. Go and do it. So what? What yeah. have they, what changes have they made then? Just change the sort of software tools you've used or? Uh, just the way that the project management tool has been set up, like Kanban boards, oh, okay. change logs. So the one thing you'll get when you're an agency, it doesn't matter if you're a digital studio like us or you're a content agency, SEO agency, clients will squeeze your scope of work and they'll want everything for nothing. And I used to do it when I was client side, I would hammer the agencies and try and get more out of the contracts than what was in the scope of work. So having like change logs to actually say, we did this extra work and this was the output, the team that worked on it, and this is the cost. Because again, it's that point of you, you deliver a project of 50 grand, but if they want, you know, 20 extra days of design and development time, there's a cost to that. So actually you top up that 50 grand, it's now a 60 grand project. But we were guilty in the first six to nine months of just pleasing all of our clients. And the clients do try to take advantage, and I used to do that, so I can't blame them. But having a change log to show what we do out of scope helps in the conversations. It means that we're responsible and they're aware of all the extra work we've done. And then you can use that in your conversations in a positive way to say, actually, we've gone you know, above and beyond for you here. Um, it would be nice if you appreciate it, because sometimes the clients don't. They just think the agency, pay them a fee, just get on with the job. But we don't like to work with that. We want to work in partnership with our clients. So hopefully we can, again, work with them for a long period of time and not just on one-off projects. And that's changed because some clients will do one-off projects. They'll want to maintain their platform and get on with it. 
but we would like to manage it form and improve it because you know, the world of tech and digital is changing. If you think that your product is future-proof for two, three years, you're very naive. You've got to keep, you know, enhancing it, looking at the UI, UX, looking at the user journeys, using new plugins, which can drive conversion of sales. There's, there's so much to do even after you finish the project. So, Do you have a fire clients if they're just not nice people to work with? Or um, has that never happened? Uh, we've never fired a client, but... There's been clients that have been difficult. Have to you ever wanted to? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was client side, I wanted to fire agencies that didn't deliver. But as I said, like we don't have a sales team. And the best way of getting new business is delivering for your client on budget, on time, and then they'll recommend you to their network and you'll get more business. So it's a nuanced balance. But if, look, if a client has been rude to staff, wanting everything out of scope of work, refusing to pay on time, I would walk away, but we haven't had that yet. But there is a line in the sand. Some clients have pushed it. The vast majority haven't. But there were, I know, I'm not stupid. There will come a time, I'm, just, I'm sure, that a client, it just won't work out because I've seen it when I was client side that agencies haven't delivered, the relationship hasn't been good. But again, like what we pride ourselves on, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke up my backside, but we're like really good people. Versus like we, we'd like to build rapport with clients. Like we don't just want to be seen as this agency that just does work and we're robots. You know, we try and build a relationship, and that in a way is working for us. I'm very interested as well by um, so you've got offices in India and in England. How do you maintain and build a culture between those two countries? And also, what are the two benefits of having those two countries? Um, yeah. I would just like to that, add to that. I've heard a lot of people speak in like the web webflow agency sphere saying don't hire people in India, just hire us experienced UK people. But I've worked with yeah, people I'd in say, India. And I'd like to say like maybe you could highlight the reality of the situation. Yeah, I'd say that to me that's absolute bullshit. And um you only have to look at India as a tech hub that's thriving. I think India now has actually gone past China in terms of population size, but the way that the government um, and the, the various states in India are investing in tech companies um, means that there's a hotbed of talent. Um, that there's a big reason to, to you know, have an office in India. One is the time difference. It means that we can service clients over a longer period of time and not just UK hours. Actually, we've got them five and a half hours in the day. So it means that we always have team members on for the majority of the day, which is great. We're nearly 24 seven in terms of support and um, that, you know, there's no shortage of talent. I'd say actually where we're based in Levington Spa, yes, there are developers, yes, there are UI and UX designers, but I bet there's not many of them. And I bet if you do hire them, it's really hard. And I bet if they're any good, they'll work for a big agency in Birmingham or London. And it will be difficult to get them to work for a smaller agency like ourselves. But in India, if we go out, because we're based in Ahmedabad, which is in Gujarat, they call it the Manchester of India. So it's like a thriving tech hub. Like I was over there um, six weeks ago, you drive out of the city and they are technology hubs, big skyscrapers everywhere that have been set up. And Mahendra Modi, the prime minister is from the city and he's invested heavily in the city. It's really, it's, you know, it's gone from strength to strength. It's clean, pretty, the transport links are great. There's software companies everywhere. Whenever we go out with a job role, 
we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applicants, which then means there's going to be a diamond in there. Whereas I believe if we went out with a development um, contract, which was hybrid work in, in Warwickshire, I think we may get 20 to 50 applicants. So the bigger your pool of candidates, the more likely you'll find that diamond. Um, but to be fair, to, to build culture, it's, yeah, it's tough, but we, you know, we do two stand-up meetings a week. We ensure that all of our project heads speak English. And two of our project managers speak Gujarati, Hindi, and English as well. So the language barrier isn't an issue. The, the project heads always join client meetings. Um, but our developers, they don't all speak English, about half do. But they're able to um, translate that over. The, the other thing that we're trying to do as well is use AI in our practices. So, um, you know, we're using the beta version of Microsoft Copilot. So, for example, this call now, it will write down all the transcripts. It can translate it straight away and it can then give you the five key things that were brought up in the meeting and what the action points were. So we do that. Um, we use Midjourney for design. Yeah, it's cool. We use yeah, Midjourney for designs yeah. as well, which is how does that design come into team. your... So do you use it for like concepts and ideas and then you bounce off that as a source of inspiration? Yeah, so um, our own experience at the moment, we, we're doing a brand refresh, not a, a rebrand, but we're just kind of updating how our brand looks across all of our communication tools. Um, so when we started to do mood boards, we used Midgen to help us through that. And we got our design team of five together. They all went off and used Midjourney. They went to Behance and on Dribble. Um, we've also signed up to a beta version of a product called Galileo, which is a UI UX tool. Um, it can basically create UI UX designs based on prompts. So let's say we got a, a pet food brand in the e-commerce industry that sells um, insect pet food. We can literally prompt it and then it can give us UI UX designs for each page that we need. And then we can overlay the designs to make them better and obviously drop that brand onto it. So yeah, yeah there's, there's various things that we're doing to speed up our processes with AI as well. Do you think in 10, like those tools are insane now, but with the rate of technology, are we going to be out of a job in 10 years? Uh, or do you think yeah, there'll always be a bit of lacking human quality? It's an uncomfortable question to ask, yeah. to answer, isn't it? Um, I think we have to be honest, jobs will go and people are going to have to pivot into other jobs or at least re-educate themselves of how AI can speed up and enhance their performance. But it's also an opportunity for, again, people that want to set up uh, as a freelancer or set up their own business that you don't necessarily need a 300 grand pot of money to start it. You have to hire five or six people out the blocks because you can actually use AI to your advantage to keep your head count and your outgoings um, down. So I, I see it as a way that if you're, you've got um, a services-based business, you could you could do more projects quicker, drive a bigger margin with less overheads if you use AI in the right way. But we have to be honest, jobs will be gone. Um, not right now, but they will be in the future. But, you know, it's the same with like driverless cars. You look at motorways and um, lorry drivers, you know, it could be in 10 or 15 years' time, lorry drivers are not needed. The technology is already there. It's just governments are starting mm. to implement it. Yeah. Um, so if you're a lorry driver and you're 30, you do need to be worried and you need to do something about it because you're probably going to be out of a job in 10 years. Yeah. And it's the same for our industry. Um, I think it's arrogant to think there won't be changes, but we're embracing it. Uh, we're slowly implementing some changes. We're not there yet, but 
we'll see where it goes. But I think my only word of advice would be read up about it, become familiar with the platforms, subtly get buy-in from your staff and start to use them. If they don't work, don't be afraid to scrap them. If they do work, refine it to improve it. And look, if jobs need to be pivoted and changed, then try and do that. But, you know, we have to be honest, jobs will go. Mm. I think it's important as well to remember the end purpose of any of these websites or things that are being developed, which is to connect with customers, connect with audience, grow the business. And there are also other ways to do that, like social, um, in-person events. So there's all sorts of ways. So do you have any plan for growing some different areas of the business, like as in anywhere in your roadmap for the next five years, such as like social campaigns? Um, yeah, we don't want to go into social media or content. Um, my background actually was heavily in content and social media were in sport, but I okay. still get kind of friend, friends and old kind of acquaintances and colleagues say, oh, can you do this for us? Oh, that's not a service we offer. We don't want to go into it. It's, I think the stress and the margins aren't big enough with creating content. Um, so we, we're staying away from it at the moment. Um, we, we, yeah, we, we are looking to... We are looking at other revenue streams. We've got one piece of software that we're launching in the summer, possibly autumn. Um, it's a push notification platform. It allows, it's like a bridge. So it's any brand that has a mobile app can essentially push out any type of content for your notifications. So any type of video content, QR codes, audio, quizzes, polls, and um, you can do AR, VR through it. So if you know United do a AR kit launch, you can tap on the notification, the camera then flips onto you and then the shirt drops onto you and you can have like a call to action button to buy the oh, shirt right now. that's sick. Yeah, we've been working on it for two years. It's called Push and Pull. And yeah, we're close to launching it. It's built. It's, yeah. it's 90% built. We're just making some refinements to the CMS. Website's ready to go. Um, we've got a marketing campaign and strategy. We're just creating all the content. We've actually got eight Warwick students joining us in two weeks' time for five oh, no weeks on the project to help us create all the content for the launch. They're essentially creating all the sales decks for us, helping us with the videos, the graphics, using our brand guidelines, and going out to market. So, um, yeah, we've bootstrapped it. We've paid for it. That's one bit of software we're launching. And then we're interested in potentially building apps and plugins on Chrome and Shopify. Um, We've actually, we looked back at the last two years and we got our development team to create this matrix and everything that we've built from games to chat rooms to personalization features. We've built like 48 unique um, pieces of tech which can bolt into websites and apps. We need to monetize them. We need to get them like live on platforms because it's low hanging fruit and revenue that mm. we just haven't got time to get our heads around to be able to activate. So um, there's a lot of opportunity there, but we'd like to build more software internally and upsell it to clients and then go out to new clients in the market as well. That's really cool. So you're kind of becoming like a venture studio as well, with like your own <laughs> array of products. Yeah, we didn't mean to. This is kind of just happened, <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. it's just interesting, mate, because you develop something for a client and you're like, well, actually that could be used it, as long as it's not contractually their IP if it's if it's ours. You know, it could be used in you know, thousands of different brands across ten different industries. So why wouldn't we try and you know, monetize it in the future? Yeah, and white label it. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. 
That's very cool. I saw you did a post recently um, showing like a mock-up of Coventry City's website and then saying, yeah. I don't know anyone at the club, but we'd love to work with them. Did anything come of that? No. Um, no. no a, lot of, a lot of people um, in my network knew people at Coventry um, and did intros and sent emails, but they never got back to us, unfortunately. Um, I'm actually... So my partner's a Cobb City fan. Um, my father-in-law's been a fan for 50 years. We're actually going as a family to the playoffs um, oh, next nice. week as well. But yeah, nothing happened, which is a shame. But there is an issue that the EFL have, I don't know what the platform is, but if you look at all of the English Football League websites, they're all the same. They're just reskinned with the club's branding. Oh, I see. Uh, there's, an there's an agreement that it has to go through the EFL. Um, so I don't think unless Coventry get promoted to Premier League, they don't need a new platform, which is a shame. I see. But we're down the roads. Uh, if the yeah. work crews were here, we'd love to Time to take it to the EFL then. <laughs> Raise it up. Yeah, absolutely. But if they get promoted, I'd love to have a meeting with them and discuss building a website and that for them mm. 100%. Yeah, so it's kind of weird how I sort of came across you. I was just reading the Times at my grandparents' house. And I was like, oh, Leamington Spa, best place to live. Interesting. And I was reading your little piece about why it's so good. And it's like a creative hub and stuff. And I used to live around the corner from One Mill Street. And I always used to think it was a cool building. So how did it come about that you were doing a piece for the Times? Um, and can you tell us a bit more about Leamington and why it's good to live in a place like that? Yeah, first of all, I've been hammered by friends and family from that feature. But <laughs> it's uh, it's got it as a few leads anyway so it's been good business-wise but um why have I, you been hammered got a call. I, uh, you know what friends are like <laughs> call, calling me like mr Leamington, although i'm not from <laughs> left here three and a half years but my partner's from Leamington, so we we moved here because we had a baby and she wanted to be near her family and it was still close to getting to london so i could still commute for work and, and whatnot so um and it's a nice place it's, it's beautiful really recommend it if you do you want to live here? Um, if anyone's listening, it's just an amazing, beautiful spot. Great parks, great restaurants, good bars. It's got good nightlife. It's there's literally a roundabout half a mile that way, which is the centre of England. It's an issue if you don't like the beach, but it does mean you can get anywhere very quickly as well, which is handy. Um, but yeah, long story short, the a PR company that the Times were working with rang me and said, we're looking for someone that owns a tech company that has a young family that lives in Leamington would you be oh, open to doing a feature so i was like super yes. precise yeah no like we can you know drop you on a panther in there give you some exposure so i said yeah no no brainer so a, a week later the times um the journalist came in to to do the feature for the times the best places to live but then was on a podcast um also with the times to talk about leamington and then i got a call from viacom who are a production company they're working with channel five and they're doing a documentary, which I think is out in the next couple of weeks. Fern Britain goes to like the six best places to live in the UK. Can do an interview with Fern Britain? So we went <laughs> back to Mill Street, where we used to be based, met Fern, did a sit-down interview for 10 minutes with her, and that, that will be on Channel 5. But, you know, like, I get loads of, like, PR companies reach out wanting to, like, um, promote our story, but they're like, oh, it's going to cost you two and a half grand. If it's free and it's a you know publication or a media platform like the Times, you can't really say no. So, yeah, now I'm Mr. Leamington, which is a bit embarrassing. 
I had I was actually walking a dog the other day and I had someone in the park go, You're like guys in the times. I was like, No way. Yeah, that's yeah, I said that's, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that's not me. He, he must be someone who looks like <laughs> I was like, Yeah, yeah. That's right. I think it's worth it a few leads for a bit of teasing from from the boys. <laughs> Exactly. And it was, if I added it all up, it was probably an hour and a half of work in the end. So yeah. yeah. And this is why I love the internet. Cause I could just read that and then find you on LinkedIn and drop you a message. And then you're like, yeah, sure. Let's stalk. Yeah. Stalk me. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever do that for, you don't have a sales team, but for like outbound sales for yellow Panther, are you a LinkedIn stalker or are you mostly just taking yeah. inbounds? Uh, well, no. yes, I am a stalker. I was more of a stalker <laughs> when we first started because I was searching for like, you know, terms on the search bar on LinkedIn, like website agencies needed. Are your website agency made on that RFPs? And I'd go out and, and, you know, look for those RFPs. But now it's more a case of I've kind of grown a following on LinkedIn. It's not huge, but it's, you know, sizable. People now tag Yellow Panther or me into posts that they see. So I then... Um, a friend the other day to say, oh, you know, she's been to Stuart Cape at Yellow Panther and, you know, it's a conversation and we've got our second meeting with a client and hopefully we may close it. But um, I stalk potential people to work for us. Um, mm. That's something I do. Uh, and, yeah, LinkedIn's interesting. We've had a few people actually claim that they work for us. Some guy in Canada. Oh, really? He's our finance manager, apparently. Never heard of him. <laughs> Uh, used our logo. It's been working for us for six years, apparently. You know, we haven't even been open for six years. It's been three and a half. So, yeah, I had to speak to LinkedIn to get that off. But uh, it's LinkedIn's been a great tool for us, I have to admit. I was going to ask you something very particular. Oh, yeah. So you guys work in AR and VR as well. I tried on a VR headset the other day, and I was... I don't know if I'm just getting overexcited, but I was literally blown away. And after thinking like, why would Facebook rebrand to Meta? I almost felt like I completely got it because I was using it and I was going like this. And then on your watch, it shows you like an iPad and you can play on the screen. And I was just thinking like, if I was working at home, I don't have a very good home office, but if I had VR goggles, I could have unlimited screens and mood boards and things like this. So having worked within that, what are your thoughts about AR and VR? Do you think it's viable? Yeah, it happens has to be done to a certain quality though. I think um, the moment you put on a, a headset and the visuals, you know, they're not 4K rendered, they're not engaging, they look rough and ready and rushed. Your first kind of perception of it is this is poor and instantly you're turned off. So it comes down to quality and how immersive and useful it is. Um, I don't know personally if I would, you know, your, your example of a workspace, I don't think I'd want to wear goggles for eight hours, nine hours, that would drive me into like a depression, to be honest. I'd try and break up my days and get outside and, and whatnot. I just don't think I'd want goggles on for more than an hour or two. But what if but, it was for an hour of brainstorming and you were in this like yeah, incredible then, digital world and you could like interact and throw things and... Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, yeah. definitely. Obviously there is a, there's a place for it. It's growing. Um, Gen Z's you know, are more in favor of it, that they will use it more in their day-to-day -day lives. That will transfer into day-to-day -day work. And um, that transition is happening, but probably a little bit slower than what people anticipated. Um, but yeah, it comes down to the, the quality of it. But yeah, for, for that um, experience, if I could get VR goggles across the whole Yellow Panther business and once a week did brainstorming sessions, 
that would be awesome. But it does come down to two things, like the cost of it and how immersive is the actual experience. Because that's the thing with any tech, it needs to be democratized and cost effective for people around the world from, you know, whatever scale of business you are. But at the moment, you know, I can only imagine a big advertising agency doing that because they'll probably have the budgets to do it for someone like the other company. Mm. It just isn't feasible. But as soon as that does change, then we would obviously look at it because it always comes down to cost resource and is it viable for our business? And at the moment, it's not. But yeah, we, we love AR and VR. We've done some cool activations and sports space for a few toys and boards for Zoom. Um, yeah, it's definitely a, a market that's growing. Who's been your favorite client you've worked with in the VR space and what sort of stuff was it? Or I'll say XR, um, so like augmented or virtual, whatever the difference is. We've built an augmented reality experience for Mahendra Modi. He is the owner of a zoo in Gujarat. So we built an AR experience where people from around the world could see and visit the zoo and its animals and all the cool stories about the animals and why they're there and um, why there's certain um, areas of the zoo and how they're doing, um, what's the words? Uh, Oh, I slipped my mind. When you're looking after animals, it's endangered. <laughs> um, endangered species. Um, okay, so the, <laughs> wait, in a zoo when there's endangered animals, what's it called? Yeah, yeah. There's a certain, I don't know, like some sort of wildlife term. protection or oh, I know what you mean. It's Con like, cons conservation. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. yeah conservation yeah. work. Sorry for a, for a particular animal. God, I got there. I can um, tell you're yeah, a sports we, guy and not a zoo guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, but that was a, that was a core experience. And also, um, there was a temple in um, a town near Ahmedabad where we did an AR experience as well. So um, Hindus around the world could actually go inside the temple and experience it in terms of the stories, the statues, the music. That was cool as well. But um, yeah, we've done a few for the Rajasthan Royals. We did an AR kit experience. They actually came to us with a cool concept, but we never got it over the line. It was during COVID. It was to do an AR experience of the SMS Stadium in Jaipur. So fans could go into the changing rooms, into the media center, into the nets. Um, but we didn't build it at the end because that you know, sounds sick. And the world opened up. But yeah. Yeah, we, we've done some cool stuff. We did a, an AR zoo in South Africa. That was cool. Um, with loads of QR codes and games, and it's more for kids. So kids can actually do the AR experience within the zoo. So they could scan the QR code, and then the animal they were looking at would come out onto the phone, it would tell them information, and it would quiz them afterwards. And then if they did the quiz, uh, the parents would put in their data, um, the kids' data, and then they could get discounts on tickets and then go into a prize draw. And that was quite cool. Oh, interesting. Is it, I don't think people, maybe it's just me being inexperienced, but I haven't heard many designers talk about being like VR slash AR designers. Are the tools getting good and easier to use? Like similarly, it's like Photoshop. Yeah. Like, um, Unreal Engine is unreal. <laughs> like, <laughs> obviously some of the videos I've seen recently, the renders, um, there was a, a couple of the game was, but it's like a Call of Duty type game. And it looked completely real, but it wasn't. So, you know, movie production houses are using Unreal for Marvel films. So Unreal have uh, done a fantastic job. But 
Yeah, they've obviously mirrored the, the AR, VR issue, which was things that pixelated and not real. Now it's very hard to tell the difference. So, yeah, it's, um, there's some great platforms out there that are a lot more cost-effective as well. So That's insane. We're going to live in such a strange world in, like, 25 years. <laughs> Maybe that's tell the difference. I know. Scary. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you for too long, um, given that you're a busy man. But what's been the best part of starting Yellow Panther or being involved in Yellow Panther, um, where it can be a, a takeaway, the best person you've worked with, what's been like a highlight of that? Um, a selfish answer, um, kind of knowing what I'm capable of. And I always believed I probably wasn't capable. Um, I'd always act in my everyday life and even in previous employment, and act confident, but actually um, I wasn't. And I'd be very nervous going into big meetings or presenting in front of you know big crowds and always doubted myself um, until you're you know, put under fire and real pressure and the business that you own is paying your mortgage and your kids and you know, paying other people. I don't really know what you're capable of until you put under those pressures. And I'm actually quite proud of myself um, I've always doubted if it was the right thing to do, but I think we've got to the stage where, yes, it has been the right decision. Um, we've grown something I think that's pretty special. We've got a happy team, you know, many happy clients who produce some fantastic work. Um, I'm quite proud of like how I've overcome so much stress and anxiety. Whilst it's that's never going to go away, you get daily stresses every day with, with owning a business, and I'm sure there's going to be some huge kind of hurdles we have to overcome. But yeah. I'm, Proved to myself I was a lot more capable than what I thought I was. So it's probably been that's awesome. So like Alex Hormozzi talks about I think building a backlog of things, a backlog of wins essentially of times where you've gone through hard things. On the thing is you don't you don't get the room to breathe and sometimes take that step back to actually say I overcome these issues or these are my successes. It's really hard when you're in the day to day grind of doing the business to actually know what's worked and hasn't worked. It's when you do get you know, your bank holiday weekend or maybe a short holiday with your family or you do a long dog walk, you can just reflect because reflection, I just wish I could do a lot more of it. But when I have done it, actually, shit, I achieved an awful lot. So for anyone starting a business or in it at the moment, it's hard to say, but try and get out of the the, the chaos and try and reflect because actually it can really kind of, give you more self-esteem and confidence because you probably achieved a lot more than what you actually think. Why would you not incorporate that into your routine if it works for you? Like even would you, would you not say like once a month, I'm going to make sure I cut off for two days or. It's time. And I have to say being a parent is the hardest thing to do when you're running a business because you don't know if your child's going to get an illness or if your child's going to wake up one day and just be really grumpy and not want to eat and really stressful. You have to pick them up from nursery. Being a parent, you're constantly tired. So you're like the walking dead. Um, so, you know, yourself, he's obviously a fair bit younger than me. When I was your age in London, I'd only be the walking dead after I got a hangover. But <laughs> when you're a parent, you're constantly hungover. Um, yeah. And then when you top up trying to have your own life, which is near enough impossible, running a business, it, you're just constantly tired. So, um, that's been the biggest testing to reflect is very hard. So it's another bit of advice I'd say, if you can set up a business before you become a parent, try and do it 
because when you become a new parent, it's bloody brutal. Yeah, interesting. I've got some friends. I do, I do love my son, by the way. So. <laughs> Good caveat. When you're talking about self-doubt earlier, what can you just dig in a bit on how that manifests? Like going into a big meeting, you act confident, but you have self-doubt. What, what sort of thoughts are they? I think people talk a lot so, about these phrases, but the reality of your the inner workings of your mind are personal to you. So what does it look like for Stu Cope? <laughs> I suffer massively from imposter syndrome. I sometimes think, oh, what the fuck am I doing? But um, my team will come to me with questions. I just don't have the answers because I've never run a business. And as one person, I don't always have the answers. So that, that can be quite tough, um, especially if they need something from you or clarity. But actually there and then, you can't provide it. You need to go away, think, and then hopefully come back with the right answer and the right resolution. That's tough, but sometimes I do go into meetings and think, you know, is Yellow Panther and, and myself, are we able to really deliver this project? And actually, you know, nine times out of ten, we can. We, we should believe in ourselves. But, you know, I always have doubts. Um, I do worry. I worry massively about, you know, when the next big project will come in. My, so this is where Gunja and I balance each other really well. I worry and I sweat the small stuff. He's relaxed, um, a bit more of a dreamer and a bit laissez-faire and actually balancing each other well. I had a heart-to-heart -heart the phone with him last week because we've actually got 11 potential contracts on the table at the moment, new bits of business. But I know from my experience, we won't close, like, close all 11. We probably won't even close six of them. But if we can close three or four, that's success. And I needed Gunjan to say that to me. Um, and that's the other thing, if you, if you start a business and you have a founder, it can be a great thing because you're like therapists for one another or football managers sometimes need to kick up the backside, sometimes you need an arm around the shoulder. And he does that really well. He's such a kind, honest man. And the way that he's been brought up in his culture is completely different to mine. But actually, that's a good thing for the business because I'm not afraid to give a polite record up the backside to some of our staff, whereas Dungeon's more of the relaxed arm around the shoulder so it, it works well for us at the moment yeah i have self-doubt so i question why i did this every day but i, I battle with my own kind of anxiety and thoughts about oh it's an amazing thing that we did oh no why am i doing this we're drowning but that's only the business and that i've had so many of those up and down days now that i'm used to it and a good night's sleep hanging out with your family you know going for a dog walk clearing the mind when you wake up the next day, it's never as bad as you think it is. So would you say like getting a good night's sleep is a remedy? Are there any other things that you found to work or is it like a constant? Cause entrepreneurship is not for everyone. So I guess there's no, some not. things you just have to deal with. I'd say like one thing I don't, I, I used to be really social. I used to like, be in London, out visiting friends and the pubs and the beer gardens. I just don't do that. I, I drink, but I don't drink heavily anymore. I just can't. Like if I go out on a Saturday night till 2 a.m., it affects me Monday, sometimes even Tuesday. So I rarely go out. So I've kind of had to sacrifice that. The one thing I do do for myself, though, I still play cricket. And, you know, I'm an average club cricketer, but I love playing. I love being with the lads. And when you're batting or bowling, you don't think about the stress of work. You're just in the moment. And that for me is... Therapy and relaxation. My partner hates it because I'm away all day on Saturday. 
but I try and make up for it on a Sunday, but I need to do that for me. And if I don't, I'll be grumpy and not a great partner, a poor dad and probably grumpy at work. So doing something selfish for yourself is good. And um, she's, my dog scratching the door, but she's <laughs> great for me. Um, you know, walking to work, so I'm 25 minutes away from a house, put my headphones on, walk her through the park. And then at lunchtime, I always take her out for 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, or do a call on my headphones. She's a godsend because she gets me out of my office and, you know, into the park. And that's just, you know, absolute magic for me. Also, I guess you're kind of getting into new headspaces away from work instead of just constantly work, 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 work. Try to, but it's easier yeah. said than done. And I'm still working <laughs> out, to be honest. So, yeah. What's next? Or are you not even thinking about that yet? Yeah, so trying to secure some bigger contracts and keep just improving all of our processes, making sure our current clients are happy, we don't lose any. Um, and just to make sure our brands or the, the rebrand that we're doing is activated right. And we start to create a little bit more creative content. I think um, we've been a bit slack on that. But loads of uh, low-hanging fruit and lots of uh, lots of things to do. I think that the other thing to add is when you have a business, you have to accept when you're small or even medium size, everything can't be perfect and refined at once. And you need to let go. And I spent the small stuff, what I said, but sometimes you need to let go of things that maybe aren't quite up to the standard you want, but actually in the big picture, if you dwell on the small things, it can take you away from the bigger aims and objectives. So, um, yeah, I think that's one key learning that yeah. definitely need to I like find take that, into the business. I find that a really hard balance to strike because I'm definitely like a just rush, get out the door, big picture. But there's a line on that scale from mess to perfection, which is the sweet spot. And finding it is definitely, definitely yeah. very hard. I listen to, like, if you love him or hate him, but Stephen Barling, he says to be a successful founder, you have to sweat the small stuff. And I agree. But again, there's a line in the sun where if you sweat the small stuff, absolutely everything, and you're trying to be a control freak over every vertical of your business and every small little thing. Yes, whilst he says all the small things add up and make a profound impact, they can also take you away from where your business is going. Um, and sometimes that I, I get that my team get frustrated with me because I'm very big on how things look and and I can be an annoyance to my team. Mm. But again, as I said, Gunj and I balance each other well. He'll sometimes ring me and say, don't quite agree with that, Stuart. I think we need to let that go. Um, and then we'll battle and debate. And then sometimes, you know, like a good leave in cricket, let the ball go. <laughs> it's sick that you have such a good relationship with each other. Yeah, as a, yeah, as a as a finishing question, then, if we were to speak, well, when we speak, hopefully in a year's time, what would be the dream client that you've just signed? And we'll come back to this and see where you're at. Selfishly, I want a really big sports client, like a bit like a Premier League football team or an international rights holder to trust us. Because what happens is in sport, you've got this. Um, ecosystem of agencies that have the monopoly over all the big brands and I want to be you know the new um, challenger brand that comes in wins one of those contracts and knocks it out of the park and then that will be a snowball effect because if you win a big client you know Manchester United PSG 
you nail that digital product, other football clubs will follow or other rights holders will. Um, so yeah, I'd love to work with like a really big sports rights holder. We work with some big ones, but I mean like top, top level. Um, that shows that we will hopefully have come a long way as a business and that they trust us. And that's the other thing as well. One thing I've learned, because I've worked for big rights holders and they're all very guilty of just picking the big agencies that have got a hundred um, previous clients that they've worked with. The issue you have with that is that rights holder is just a spoke on the wheel for that agency. They're, you know, 1% of their client base. Actually, it can be refreshing and beneficial for the rights holder to work with a smaller agency because you could be their biggest client so they will, they will really look after you and they'll do a lot more maybe than what the smaller, sorry, what the bigger agency would do. Because sometimes I think rights holders get too um, focused on the name of the agency. It doesn't matter what the agency is called. It's the team within that agency that you work with. Because you could work for um, a big content agency and you could be given a great team within their ecosystem or a ship team. It all depends. It's all about the people that work on your account. Um, but yeah, big client, the rights holder space, knock that project out of the park, and then hope that snowballs into to more bigger business. That would be the aim for me. Okay, well, it's out there now. So <laughs> best of luck, and I hope you make it happen. Nice uh, one, mate. Anyway. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for your time. Like, um, it's, been, it's been great. No, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I know you're very busy. And yeah, it's been really interesting to hear um, your perspective and everything. So yeah, cool. Thanks for coming off, on. Off to cricket training to miss some straight ones. See you later. <laughs> All right, Cheers, thanks, Stuart. See you later. Take care.